0: Tyler's wife. I am so excited to be doing this introduction right now because this podcast has been a dream of Tyler's for a while and I'm really excited to see it come to life. This is going to be a space for conversations, a space where discomfort is welcome and quite frankly encouraged. All of that to say that this first episode is about Tyler's story and how he got to where he is today. Just a little disclaimer, Tyler is a storyteller and with that comes a lot of details. Sometimes way too many, but his story is by far one of my favorites, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So, with that, sit back, enjoy, and welcome to Left and White. shadow of the confederate flag it hung in equal size next to the american flag in my elementary school gym in a town called central near baton rouge where the civil war was commonly called the war for southern independence i was a lanky young baptist boy with glasses shorts too short and a smart mouthiness that left adults unsure whether to be offended or amused i was a gregarious lad who could quote everything from dwight eisenhower's d-day speech to most of the movie titanic forced to attend awana every wednesday night which is basically christian cub scouts I earned almost every patch and badge a young evangelical could dream of through memorizing Bible verses. I was always most comfortable around the adults, waking up early at church camp to drink coffee with the men by the fireplace. I looked up to my Sunday school teachers, who taught me how to be a good man and to have a firm handshake. I lionized these men. I didn't know what I was good at, what my thing was, perhaps because where I lived, I wasn't yet able to live into who I was really supposed to be. Mother insisted I had to do something. So I did piano lessons for seven years and hated six and a half of it. I can't play a single note or read sheet music to this day. I tried t-ball, but the one time I got a hit, the crowd yelled, run home. And I ran, I lie to you not, toward my house. So sports and guy stuff was kind of off limits for me. I even tried, and I shudder to say this, acting classes, which my father had to drive me to across town once a week. I can't imagine his disappointment. I think not fitting the traditional mold of my community's expectations for young male behavior left me feeling kind of isolated, especially at a school that glorified the football team and pep rallies above academics. Part of this isolation, I felt, I think, led me to take refuge in the church. Being a part of that community was really important for our family, and I'm overall really thankful for that. It set me up for who I am now, though many people might look at me and say I've lost my way. I might say the same of them, but we'll come back to that. My community, my church, my family operated under the assumption perhaps misguided, that they were keeping us safe from the ways of the world. So naturally, I missed out on some things. I've never been trick-or-treating, as we instead opted to attend the church's annual pumpkin patch. Trick-or-treating was, of course, satanic. I listened to movie soundtracks instead of Third Eye Blind, and when other kids were reading Harry Potter, I was reading the Left Behind series. I don't know if my parents always knew how to deal with me as a kid. I was a backtalker and a negotiator. I wanted the rationale for things, and I wasn't often willing to accept answers or directives without an explanation. Once my cousin was having a baby and we were all at the hospital, I asked Mother how, you know, it works. Mother clearly wasn't ready to explain this, but for some reason didn't hold back at all in describing how certain parts of a woman expand to uh, allow the glorious exit of a newborn. I think after that is when they figured they should probably tell me how the rest of it works. So instead of having the talk, we signed up for a class at the hospital where a middle-aged man stood in front of 70 dads and their 12-year-olds, telling us about the time he got an erection while doing a math problem on the board in grade school. My mother and father are really good people who have almost always been really supportive of me as I try and figure out my place in the world. They've trusted me. Only once did I really betray that trust, but I'll share about that in a bit. My parents are wonderful people. From mother, I learned to talk to anyone, to do your research, and to try and understand everyone's perspective. From father, I learned to be giving and generous, to put faith in God, and to work hard for the people you care about. That's what he's always done for us. As I tell my story, it might feel as though I'm criticizing my family for their choices, and in some cases that's true. Every kid deserves the right to name how their parents could have done things differently or better. But throughout most of this, I'm really referring to the sum total of my upbringing—school, church, community, and home. All of these things fit together to make me who I am, which is, I hope, someone my parents are proud of. I had a good childhood. I played flashlight tag with the neighborhood friends on summer nights. We explored the woods around our house, played with pellet guns, and walked to McDonald's for McFlurries. There was the simplicity of those early years without cell phones where you had to walk down the road to ask if Trevor could hang out, and and we would eat pizza rolls and Cool Ranch Doritos while we played Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Despite feeling left out of some things in my school environment, I definitely had the richness of friendships with Trevor, Matthew, and Michael in the neighborhood, and Jake at school. Jake and I have known each other since third grade, Uh, the swimming pool where our siblings took lessons together. In an elementary school uh, where I was often an outcast, he was a brother. We made movies together as kids, explored the woods around his house, and shared many formative experiences together. I can say with certainty I would not have made it without him. He was there on that first day at a new high school. He and I, the lone crossovers from the school where our best qualities weren't always appreciated, where there weren't often outlets for us to be our best selves. I had a natural inquisitiveness and desire to learn. And believe me, there was a lot I didn't know. Once at church camp in elementary school, out of nothing but curiosity, I asked the one black kid how come the palms of his hands aren't as black as the rest of him. He had this look of surprise, like I'd said something he never thought about before. A white kid who overheard this conversation said it's because God made them stand palms against the wall to spray paint them black. It would be another decade before I realized how messed up that statement was. That same week, I told the camp counselor how much I liked the James Bond movies and video games. He told me James Bond has more venereal diseases than any other living person. To this day, I don't know if he was making an inappropriate joke or was truly disgusted that I might glorify such a character as 007. But I've always wanted to simply understand the world and figure out how things and people worked. I was always in my head, thinking about something. I'm still that way now, a very nostalgic guy. I think because of the cerebral nature of my being, I was misunderstood by a lot of people, and I don't think I realized how hard that must have been for young me until I got older and was able to reflect on those childhood experiences. There was a certain innocence to my childhood times, yet some trepidation seemed to loom over me, though I couldn't quite place it. By the time I was in late elementary or early middle school, I suppose I began to notice the world was more sinister than I knew. Even though I lacked the cultural awareness, historical context, or the critical lens through which to view my religion and upbringing, I got the sense that something wasn't quite right. The small private school I went to for kindergarten through eighth grade was tucked at the end of a residential street surrounded by woods. It was a curious place, established in 1967 at the height of desegregation. The school reflected the demographics, all white, of the overall community, and it still does. As I said, the Confederate flag hung prominently in the gym, and our mascot was the rebel soldier. We had corporal punishment there, and in the early 2000s, I witnessed a kid get paddled for what I assume was some minor infraction. Against the wall, spread, he said, followed by pop, 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 with a wooden paddle, carved and painted, with the stars and bars. I suppose these things always seemed a bit strange to me, but remember, I lacked the larger context for understanding what was wrong here. I think the first thing that really started to shift my perspective was when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. I was sitting with Mother, watching the evening news, and on the news was our school principal. You could see all of us kids out on the playground in the background of the interview. The principal was asked, why are you at school today? And he responded, we don't have any people like that here. So this holiday doesn't apply to us. It was Martin Luther King Day. I'm a Christian, a person of faith in Jesus. People hear that, and it comes with certain connotations. Bigoted, closed-minded, Republican, conservative. And these days, a big fan of President Trump. Sadly, these connotations are increasingly true of the modern American Christian the way I see it, and maybe always have been. I'd like to say I'm none of these things. There were times in my life I would have called myself a Republican, thought being gay meant you were going to hell, and that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Thankfully, since I began to experience the world beyond my childhood bubble, I learned to value opinions and perspectives different than my own. It humbled me that perhaps I don't have it all figured out. I became a more accepting person and began to notice that the people who taught me Christian love and acceptance growing up were very much not living out those values. I see their support of Trump now, for example, which is antithetical to almost every value that they imparted to me. So I had to struggle through a lot to come to where I am today. I grew up hearing that Republican conservative equals Christian equals America equals patriotism. We're so lucky as Americans that God chose us above all the other countries and people, right? Liberals and Democrats were automatically bad, sinful, and un-American. I used to get emails from one of my aunts claiming that Obama was the Antichrist and wanted to put all the Christians in prison camps. A big part of my awakening to the beautiful diversity of the world, which I was previously unaware was my experience at Baton Rouge High, You know, one of the things that makes me firmly believe in God is the otherwise fluke occurrence of me having the opportunity to even go to a new high school in the city, away from the homogenous area I grew up. I was on the waiting list all summer until the Monday before school started. I thought I was staying in Central, continuing on a path of tepid acceptance of the status quo of white evangelical conservatism, until I got the call from Baton Rouge High. They had a place for me and to this day, I count that moment as one of the most defining in my life. A big part of my story as a person Is my path from conservative evangelicalism to the left-leaning political views that I have today, many of which are rooted in how I've come to understand my faith. Remember, I was made to believe that falling to the left of center meant I wasn't a Christian anymore. I'll never forget right before ninth grade started, my father said, that school's going to make you into a liberal. I assured him it wouldn't because I thought that meant I had to be an atheist too, and I wasn't willing to do that. I don't blame my father for telling me this, and I don't think it's a good representation of the loving and giving person that he actually is. He and I were just both raised to believe that being liberal meant you were godless, and that's a narrative that takes time to unlearn. Coming from a homogenous school, church, and community, getting into Baton Rouge High gave me the chance to explore a new place and, to me, a whole new world. I was offered the chance to experience things that would help me overcome my biases and misconceptions about race, religious, and cultural differences. As it turns out, Black people don't all want to rob me, Muslims don't all want to kill me, and gay people don't want to turn me gay. So I learned a lot at Baton Rouge High, not limited to academics. I attribute much of this to the one of the first friends I made in high school on the bus ride home in early August. Hi, I'm Chelsea, she said from across the aisle. She was from Central, just like me and Jake. She was outgoing and well-connected, had an interesting family, and I spent a lot of time with them throughout high school. Thanks to Baton Rouge High, I had the chance to become the person that my earlier years didn't provide. Jake and I joined Film Club and met people just like us. Chelsea convinced me to join Yearbook and the Youth and Government Club, I didn't know it at the time, but youth and government set me up for where I am today. I learned about servant leadership, and I met really smart and interesting people from all over Louisiana. One of the directors of the program was connected with Teach for America, and I unknowingly filed away that information in my brain for future reference. I would end up needing it about seven years later. Chelsea and I stayed involved in youth and government in college as well, and I think this is where I started to really develop my passion for working with high school students. That, plus the connection to Teach for America, was instrumental in getting me where I am today, but we'll come back to that soon. In high school, I also learned that science and religion can coexist. According to my current pastor, they ask different questions. Science answers how, and religion answers why. Both can be true, and it doesn't weaken my faith to believe in an all-powerful God as well as the evolutionary process. As a kid, I couldn't comprehend that the earth is billions of years old, and now I can't understand how a Christian can be so against science that many overwhelmingly reject the settled science of climate change, leading us not to steward the earth as I think God calls us to. It certainly took me a while to come to this conclusion. I mean, as late as 11th grade, Chelsea and I even made fun of our environmental science teacher for teaching us about climate change. Thankfully, she loved us through that. I can say with confidence that I never let go of my faith. As I learned more about people and about the world, it never crossed my mind that I had to stop believing in God. Now, mind you, I was certainly coming around to adopting left-leaning political viewpoints, and I was concerned that meant I would go to hell, but I never made the choice for myself to reject Christianity. I just figured Christianity would reject me. Because of this, it took many more years before I was able to admit to myself that my political leanings had become what they had become. Like I said, my faith was and is still very important to me, and I wasn't willing to let go of that. I'm thankful for my parents for instilling that foundation in me. In high school and college, I made mistakes and did things I'm not proud of. Some I can tell you about, some I can't. As a young Baptist boy, drinking was forbidden. In high school, I messed around with beverages more than I should have, something that, upon discovery, made my family very upset. They had every right to be. I had betrayed their trust, and I did not live up to who they hoped I would be. However, I hope they see now that what I did as a teenager, combined with being raised in a Baptist church, doesn't condemn me today. In fact, you'll often find me at a brewery with friends from church, deeply engaged in conversation about what our role is as Christians in this increasingly complicated and divided world. After all, Jesus and his buddies drank wine, too. I should mention the girls. I've always wanted the real thing, to have a meaningful relationship with someone who wanted to be with me long term. I had a few such chances, or so I thought. My first girlfriend in 10th grade told me she had cancer. It was her secret, she said, something that she trusted me with as she tried to live as normal as possible in the two years she had left. Our relationship was tumultuous for normal reasons, as any high school romance is. She trusted me and I trusted her, but she betrayed that trust often. There were other guys, and she had to make a choice, me or them. She chose them. That was summer of 2008. It was a hard summer, but during it, I learned one of the most important lessons of my life. Distraught about my relationship and the cancer, I found myself outside the original Raising Canes by LSU. A homeless man asked me what was wrong. I didn't want to burden him with my problems. He had enough of his own, but he insisted, so I shared. Does God give you a second chance, he asked. Of course, I say. Abruptly, he says, no. No. He gives you another chance. And that stuck with me ever since. Some months later, she told me she didn't have cancer, and as it turned out, she never did. The whole thing was a lie, and I was not the only victim. There were nine other guys I later learned who she was running the same play on. I said my goodbye to her in December of 2008. If you want to read the whole story of this experience, visit reamsofconsciousness.com and look for A Walk to Forget. A few years later, thanks to Chelsea and her family's connection to Mardi Gras balls in Baton Rouge, I got to meet Kelsey, a tangential friend from Texas. She and I hit it off and took the brave step to have a long-distance relationship between Baton Rouge and Houston and later Waco when Kelsey went to college. Even after my experience with my first girlfriend and the lies that came with that, I found an immediate certainty that Kelsey was nothing like that. We had a great relationship, one in which I learned patience during times of being apart from each other, how to communicate, and serve another person as your equal. I got to explore the world further beyond my boundaries of my hometown. It was the first serious relationship for both of us, so naturally we shared much growth and learning together. After about three and a half years, she called it off in the summer of 2012. I was shocked, and after she ended things, I was uncharacteristically angry. I was mean to her. I went on to do things I'm not proud of, which only a few people know the whole story behind. But in the years since, I've been reflective about our relationship in this important way. Though I blamed her for ending things and for not having good reasons why, I realize now that... That might be on me. Long distance was hard. Despite my commitment to her, and though I was never unfaithful, I certainly did wander emotionally at times. I think that was too much for her, and for that I owe her an apology. She taught me a lot, and I wouldn't trade our time together for many reasons, but for one very important reason in particular. Because of Kelsey, I have Elizabeth. They went to church together, so I knew her by name and face only. A couple of months after Kelsey and I broke up, Elizabeth's family moved from Houston to Baton Rouge for her mother's job. We got to talking, since I was the only person she knew in town. Through our shared love of service, we went on a trip to New York to help with disaster relief after Hurricane Sandy. On that trip, in December of 2012, we made our relationship official next to the big Christmas tree at 30 Rock, after an accidental I love you while passing a beer at the pub that inspired McLaren's and How I Met Your Mother. Elizabeth is unconditionally supportive and eternally giving. She gets me, and if for some reason she doesn't, she works really hard to make sure she does. She's the best ally I could hope for as I continue to reflect on who I am and what my role is in this world. She's committed to my students, often loving them as I do. She and I got married young, but normal by Southern Christian standards. I proposed to her during my last semester at LSU on the steps of the Louisiana State Capitol. We stood on the Texas step in honor of our future home we chose together at one of my favorite places in the world, a building whose cornerstone reads, we live for those we love. You know, I think God puts us where we're supposed to be for the most part. This has been a theme that's been true all my life. Had I not met Chelsea on the bus that first week at school, become close friends with her, and attended events with her family, I never would have met Kelsey. Without Kelsey and what I learned from her and the perfectly timed move of Elizabeth's family to Louisiana, I wouldn't have found what I was looking for. Beyond relationships, I also longed for meaningful work. I think my heart for service and the ideals I learned in the youth and government program played a big role in what led me to become a teacher. But this was not instantaneous. I believe in service but i also seek security i chose to study business and finance at lsu because i knew with such an in-demand degree i was sure to find a job and have financial security but this wasn't quite enough i needed to impact the lives of real people not a corporation's bottom line so i found personal finance i wanted to help people figure out their money their goals and their future so they could feel secure too yet it still somehow just wasn't quite enough i learned that a good financial advisor has the heart of a teacher So there was teaching nagging at me during the last half of college. I recalled the people I knew in Teach for America and saw that as a way to serve with meaning and purpose. I was accepted to Teach for America's highly competitive program, but I'll be the first to admit that connections, networks, and just generally being nice to people has gotten me way further in life than intelligence or skill. People have gone out of their way for me more than I deserve. I also have to reckon with the role that my privilege plays in that, which is something I first learned about around this time in my life. I'm white, which means I have certain advantages and privileges that people darker than me don't have. These privileges are systemic, often implicit and unconscious, and unfair. Coming to understand this has been one of the most impactful realizations for me. There's a lot more to say on this topic, but don't worry, I have a whole episode dedicated to this very soon. My relationship with Elizabeth and my acceptance into Teach for America took us to Dallas, where we now reside and have built a community of church and friends. Many members of our village of people that we do life with have spread throughout the country, giving us connections of love and support almost everywhere. I'm doing exactly what I wanted, building a life with someone. Leaving Louisiana was what I wanted at the time, and I'm still glad I did it, but I love home. I love it enough that I have an outline of the state tattooed on my arm. Sometimes I don't hear the end of it about how I left, one of the few people in my extended family to move away. Sometimes I get criticized for making a choice that was, for once, made with my best interest and no one else's. I don't often think or act that way, and anyone who knows me knows it was hard for me to do. So I came to this new place, armed with a business degree and a belief that every kid deserves an excellent education. They placed me teaching special education, which was fine by me because I wanted to go where the need was greatest. It was a self-contained autism classroom. The student was 12 years old, nonverbal, and could often become quite violent. He also needed pretty significant toilet assistance, which came as a surprise to me because the only person I had ever cleaned prior to that was myself. I was bitten and scratched almost daily. My partner teacher and I entered staff meeting after school one day, and the remnants of my undershirt were covered with poop and blood. Upon seeing what a horrendous sight we were, the assistant principal gave us a $20 bill and sent us to the bar across the street. People told me to quit, to cut that year short, to do something different. I was unprepared. Teach for America should have never placed me in that role to begin with, and in many ways I was in danger of being hurt on a daily basis. To this day, that year was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I didn't quit. I knew that if I did, I was abandoning a kid that deserved to be served. And if I didn't do it, someone else would have to. How do I know they would do as good of a job as me, or care as much as I did? So I made it through the year. The next year, I was offered to teach geometry, which I went on to do for a few years before finding my best fit in economics and government. From the moment I decided to become a teacher, that's what I wanted. I wanted kids to understand the systems of our society and how some systems are built to help us and others to harm us. I wanted them to know their rights, to be able to assess truth in media, to protect themselves against a society that often does not see them as valuable. In contrast to surrounding myself with adults when I was young, I found more comfort now in being among the youth. I love hanging out with my high school students. I see in them a sense of passion and urgency to disrupt the systems of power and oppression in our society. Learning more about them and their stories gives me the energy to keep fighting alongside them. Most of my kids are low-income students of color. Apart from the diversity of my own high school experience, this was new for me. I had a lot to learn. This is where my adoption of leftist economics really solidified. I had been taught growing up that America is full of opportunity, and that if you work really hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you could do anything you wanted. It became increasingly clear to me that wasn't true, because no one ever coupled that conversation with an analysis of racism or xenophobia or crony capitalism. Many of my kids' families aren't paid a living wage, and that's not their fault. Many of them don't speak English. I have students whose parents can't take them to the doctor to get necessary medical care, not just because they don't have health insurance, but because they fear being deported. You might say, why don't these families work harder to provide for themselves and to access that quality health care and so on? I used to believe that too. But I know their stories now, so please don't tell me the families of my students don't work hard. They work a hell of a lot harder than me, that's for sure. So go ahead. Call me a liberal Marxist anti-American communist or whatever you're thinking right now. I'm sure many of you are disappointed in me, and in some cases, you will be no matter how well I explain it. My journey isn't complete, and in truth, I've toyed with a number of political ideas. If you want to know, I'd probably call myself a socialist, but in the sense that I want the taxes I already pay to go to things that benefit average people, not tax cuts for billionaires or bombing kids in the Middle East. I don't have a problem with businesses, and I actually think it's great that we have such innovation in the United States. I do have a problem with massive corporations that pay less than a living wage so they can maximize their profits without regard to the labor and the people that provided those profits. I have a problem that minimum wage hasn't increased in over 10 years since I started working, yet the cost of groceries, education, and health care have gone up. The gap between rich and poor in this country is larger than any other time in history, and I definitely don't blame that on people for not working hard enough. This nation was built on conquering, slavery, and oppression. Original sins that we have not yet authentically reckoned with. I don't believe God chose capitalism or America, and if anything, he would be wildly disappointed in us. I'm sharing some strong opinions here, and some of you might be tempted to suggest that I unfairly use my power and influence to indoctrinate my students into Marxist ideology or whatever. In fact, an uncle recently called me a bad teacher and a double idiot after learning my personal views on a variety of topics. I believe I steward well the influence I have with my students. They trust me, and it would be wrong to abuse that trust and influence. I don't share my personal opinions with them. I do give them the tools to evaluate for themselves what they believe to be the right answer. To the student who says free speech should be limited, I say, who should get to decide the limit? To the student who says people should be able to say whatever they want, I say, what about when the KKK wants to march down Ilm Street? My job is to build better people, critical thinkers who won't fall victim to the lies of media or be taken advantage of by systems that were never built for them in the first place. I can do all that without them knowing I think the minimum wage should be higher. Coach Paul Dietzel from LSU back in the day once said, Whatever I give, I always have. Whatever I keep is lost forever. I keep this idea with me throughout my teaching that if I do right by kids and give them what they deserve, I'll be okay. But if I focus on me, I'm not likely to have the most fulfilling life, and perhaps neither will they. But as much as I thought I had it figured out, I didn't. My first principal said as much to me during my evaluation at the end of my second year. She suggested that maybe I don't always have the best interest of my kids in mind. I took great offense to this. I told her how dare she suggest that. I recognized my privilege and that I had it good. It was that guilt that brought me here to teach these kids. Boy, did that set her off and she lit me up. We don't need your white guilt. My students need someone who will fight with them and for them every day. She was right. I needed to change my perspective yet again. I wasn't there to save these kids. I was there to unlock their power. Teach for America was a two-year commitment, and I figured I'd do two, maybe three years. People would ask me what's next, and I would say any number of different things, with Elizabeth standing by, shaking her head. No, he'll be doing this forever. She was right. Knowing my students and their stories has exposed for me a lot of what's wrong in America, and that perhaps the American dream might not be within reach for many of us. So what do we do? We have to be willing to talk to each other, to hear stories, to seek to understand different perspectives. We are all on a path of learning, but we have to listen to one another in order to be heard. This is my story, the experiences that I've had and the things I've observed that have led me to see the world as I do. My story has its shameful parts, but those things make me who I am. I'm ashamed that my elementary school flies the Confederate flag, but without teachers there like Miss Pilgrim and Miss Kinchin, I would not have the reading, writing, and speaking skill to be sharing this story with you now. I'm thankful for them and what they taught me. I'm disappointed and distrusting of many of the men and women who raised me in the church, who taught me how to love Jesus and love other people, but seem so rarely to live those values themselves. I see them rejecting the migrant, supporting candidates who advocate for destroying the environment, and who in many ways seem to worship a current president who may be the farthest from Christian ideals that I can imagine. I feel hopeless at times because of this, but without these people, I wouldn't be who I am, and I wouldn't see the world as I do. I can't cast stones at the people and places I come from without admitting my own faults. In the same way that I came to perceive many of the folks back home as close-minded and hateful, weaponizing their religion to do harm to God's children, I started to lack grace and love for them. I still struggle with this. Mother has to remind me often that if I believe in loving everyone and accepting everyone, I have to do the same for those that I deem as failing to live a life like Jesus. I had the chance to broaden my horizons at Baton Rouge High and even further once I became a teacher. Some people never get to have that experience. In some ways, I become resentful of those people. But it hurts to be that way because at my core, I know my purpose is to be loving and gracious, as Jesus calls us to be. I guess I try to hold on to that idea in my interactions with others. If I can keep seeing the humanity in other people, maybe they'll see it in me. This whole time, I've been trying to find my place. In many ways, i found it. I'm a teacher, a servant of people, someone who seeks to live a life like Jesus, an ally to the oppressed and marginalized, a believer in the collective over the individual. This is my show, Left and White. I call it that because that's what I am. After years of struggling with these identities, I'm proud of who I've become, but I've got a long way to go. I'm on a path and a journey just like you, So I hope you'll join me for conversations and stories as I sit down with friends and family for discussing, sharing, learning, growth, and hopefully healing. We'll talk soon. Until then, be good.